Thank you for downloading this sermon from Grace Presbyterian Church. Grace is a church where people seeking more grace, more depth, and more community can start finding their way and sharing their gifts with the world. You can follow us online at graceforsufalls.org. I'm going to date myself a little bit and in the process date some of you as well, but uh, some of us were alive in the 1980s. And it was a very different world. It was a world divided into two spheres, into two sectors. And on both sides of that line between east and west, we had a lot of nuclear weapons. It was often said that we had enough uh, nuclear power to destroy the world many times over again. When you live under those circumstances, one of the things you pray for earnestly is peace. In addition to praying for peace, many people acted for peace, and so one of the concerns of that period was nuclear disarmament. Maybe you remember in the 1970s and the 1980s this uh, series of negotiations between the United States as representative of the West and the Soviet Union, and the goal of these negotiations was to reduce the number of warheads that each side had. But there was a problem Because in the West, as an open society, it was possible, at least somewhat, to figure out whether or not we kept the promises that we made. But in the East, in the Soviet Union, that was a closed society. So they could promise anything, and it was almost impossible to know whether or not they were keeping those promises. So that was an anxiety that that people had during the negotiations. In the 1980s, President Ronald Reagan coined a famous phrase to describe the American attitude towards the negotiations. Some of you will remember this and could probably quote it. He said, trust, but verify. Trust, but verify. What you may not know is that he didn't come up with those words. That's actually an old Russian proverb, trust, but verify. And so they thought maybe there's some some wisdom here to be learned from our negotiating uh, partners we will uh, use this proverb to our advantage. We will trust them, but we will verify that they're keeping their promises. And what that means, of course, is you enter into negotiations in good faith so that you can uh, negotiate a good deal. But once you've done that, you take independent measures. You seek independent confirmation. You know, Satellites fly overhead, and they try to determine whether or not the promises that are made are actually being kept. You can understand the importance of that. Sometimes promises are made, but you can't trust that they're going to be fulfilled. And if you can confirm, if you can verify that there is some some promise-keeping going on, it can help you have faith. In our text, in 2 Peter chapter 1, Peter is essentially making a similar offer to us. Trust God, he says, but verify. You can trust God. You can believe in the Word of God. You can have confidence in the promises of God, but you can have more than confidence, Peter says. You can have confirmation. You can actually have confirmation that God will do the things that he says he will do. You can have confirmation that his promises are going to be kept. The last time, The form of that confirmation was interesting. So you remember in uh, the first 15 verses of 2 Peter, Peter is essentially telling us, if you're in Christ, if you believe, then you should apply yourself 
to this series of virtues. He gives us a long list of virtue, knowledge, self-control, steadfastness, godliness, brotherly affection, and love. And he says those acts of obedience in your life, that's the fruit of something deep. It is the confirmation of your calling and election. It's the way, he says, that you can make your calling and election sure. And now, he's talking about confirmation again, but the confirmation of something else, the confirmation of what he calls the prophetic word. We have the prophetic word, he says, but we have it confirmed. We have it confirmed. It has been verified. It is trustworthy. How is the prophetic word confirmed? How is it verified? By its fulfillment. If in the first case, obedience becomes a way to confirm calling an election, now fulfillment is the way that we confirm the reliability of the prophetic word that God has given. And this confirmation is actually something important. It's something valuable because in this world, it's easier to doubt than it is to believe. It's easier to doubt than it is to believe. And when I say that, I'm not talking about people out there. I don't want you to have like a, a self-righteous reaction and say, well, of course, it's easier for them to doubt. I'm talking about you. I'm talking about me. It's easier for us to doubt. It's easier for us to assume that this isn't true than to rely on the truth of the words that Jesus says. And we're in good company. We're in good company. If you look at Matthew 28, right before the Great Commission, that sort of high point of Matthew's Gospel, where Jesus gives the church its mission, you read these words. This is Matthew 28 in verse 16 and 17. Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. The 11, minus Judas. It doesn't mean Judas doubted. It also doesn't mean Thomas doubted. I mean, this is the 11. These guys, the inner circle of Jesus, the guys who saw it all, these guys, some of them, not just one of them, some of them doubted. Some of them had reservations about what they'd seen. We can relate. They saw so much more, and yet they too sometimes doubted. And because of that weakness, God gives us things to assure us. As we were preaching through John chapter 6 over the last few weeks, we talked a lot about the sacraments in that regard, the Lord's Supper in that regard, as a sign and seal of the covenant of grace. That God has made a promise of grace, but he's also given us a sign and seal of that promise, something tangible, so that you can taste and see that the Lord is good, so that you can have confirmation. The Belgic Confession, Article 33 on the sacrament, says, We believe that our good God, mindful of our crudeness and weakness, has ordained sacraments for us to seal his promises in us, to pledge his goodwill and grace toward us, and also to nourish and sustain our faith. And all of that stuff towards the end sounds really good and inspiring, but, but to get there, you first have to learn about our crudeness and weakness. God sees us for what we are. He sees us in our weakness. He knows that no matter how much truth you witness, at a certain point you're going to have qualms, doubts, uncertainties. And so he comes alongside to assure you in your weakness. 
That's what the sacraments are. But here in our text, Peter is saying, actually, we have even more. We have even more confirmation, even more assurance than this. God has given us much more than that to assure us in our weakness. It's not that God has to prove himself. He doesn't have to prove himself, but he does anyway. For our sakes. For our sakes, to strengthen us. There is a difference between the kind of verification that we were looking for in nuclear disarmament talks and the kind of confirmation that Peter is talking about. Obviously, the United States wanted independent confirmation, verification that missiles were being dismantled and destroyed. But the problem is, how do you have confirmation of things that you cannot independently verify? How can we have independent verification of the Word of God? If you think about the example that we looked at last week, you're calling an election, which can be made sure, that can be confirmed through obedience, we can't get independent verification on calling an election. You can't go back in time, before time, to the foundation of the world, as God is is choosing us in him, in Christ, before the foundation of the world, as Peter says, or sorry, as Paul says in Ephesians 1, you can't go back to that moment and wait to see if you hear your name. You can't independently confirm this fact. Any more than you can go back to Peter writing this epistle and observe him writing it and determine whether or not as he writes, the Spirit is working through him. There's not a test that you can apply to Second Peter to determine whether or not these words are in fact the inspired Word of God. We cannot independently verify these things that God gives us which seems to suggest that we cannot have them confirmed. But Peter says we can. It just happens a little bit differently. We cannot independently for ourselves verify the promises of God, yet he confirms and verifies them for us. He does both the promising and the confirming for us. He verifies his calling and election by working obedience in us. We touched on this last time. When Peter says, you should improve on, you should supplement your faith with these virtues, he's not saying God saved you by faith, but in order to remain saved, you need to be good now and start doing these good things so that you don't displease God and lose your salvation. He's not saying that because he recognizes that the work of obedience, the work of sanctification in your life is also a work of the Spirit. The Spirit doesn't stop working in you once you're saved and then leave you to yourself, but actually the whole of your salvation is the work of God through the Holy Spirit. So God, through your obedience, through the fruit of the Spirit in your life, is giving you confirmation of something you cannot possibly verify apart from Him. And He does the same thing in the case of His Word. If he verifies his call by working obedience in us, he verifies his prophetic word by fulfilling his promises over time. He's given us in Scripture a long history, thousands of years of history, of the relationship between God and man. Why? A God who stands outside of time, who knows all things, who ordains, as the Westminster Confession says, whatsoever comes to pass, why couldn't he just do it all at once? Why couldn't he jump to the end? 
If he knew what he was going to do, why didn't he just fast forward? Why all this history? One of the reasons that we have all this history is confirmation of the prophetic word. That we see not only promises made, but a history of promises kept. Promises kept. Independent verification, confirmation from God himself. So, the confirmation, like the choice itself, or like the word itself, or the promise itself, comes from God himself. He gives both the promise and its fulfillment, its confirmation. He works out confirmation in our lives through his Holy Spirit. And he works out confirmation in human history also through the Holy Spirit. So not only the history of your life, but the history of humanity becomes a record of the confirmation of the promises of God. So that we look back on it and we see his promises confirmed and we glorify him. But we do more than that. We glorify him and we take comfort. We take comfort in our doubt. Comfort we need very much. This is the comfort that is being offered to us by Peter by turning us to the Word of God. He has what we would call a high view of Scripture. Peter believes in the power of Scripture because he has seen it fulfilled. The prophetic word of old, the prophecy that he grew up with, he's seen it fulfilled. So when he looks at those ancient writings, he doesn't see them as myths. He says, these aren't myths. This is reality. The gospel is no myth, Peter says, because myths have no eyewitnesses. Almost 86 years ago, to the day, to the day in September of 1931, There was a famous walk through the countryside. Three men walked, Hugo Dyson, J.R.R. Tolkien, and C.S. Lewis. Two of them were believers. One of them was not. Ironically, the one who would become the most famous Christian apologist of the 20th century was the unbeliever on that walk. And they had a long conversation with him, Dyson and Tolkien, where they tried to, to get Lewis to understand the gospel to see the reality of the gospel. And ironically, what got through to him, the argument that got through, was actually an argument that had to do with myth. Because if you know C.S. Lewis, you know that he was a big uh, advocate, a believer in the beauty and the power of the ideas contained in ancient myth. In one of his letters after the fact, he described this walk and the argument that brought him around. I want you to hear the words of C.S. Lewis. He wrote this, Now what Dyson and Tolkien showed me was this, that if I met the idea of sacrifice in a pagan story, I didn't mind it at all. Again, that if I met the idea of a god sacrificing himself to himself, I liked it very much and was mysteriously moved by it. Again, that the idea of the dying and reviving god, for example, Baldur or Adonis or Bacchus, similarly moved me, provided I met it anywhere except in the Gospels. The reason was that in pagan stories, I was prepared to feel the myth as profound and suggestive of meanings beyond my grasp, even though I could not say in cold prose what it meant. Now the story of Christ is simply a true myth, a myth working on us in the same way as the others, but with this tremendous difference that it really happens. 
which is why C.S. Lewis would sometimes talk about the gospel as a myth that came true. A myth in the sense that it was a story that explained the world. It was a story rich in inexpressible meaning, but different than a myth in that it had actually taken place. It was a story that had transpired in history. And that's the point Peter wants to make. He says, we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. Myths do not have eyewitnesses. Peter had seen something, and what he had seen had confirmed for him all of the promises he'd grown up hearing. So what was it that he saw? What was it that that he witnessed? Generally speaking, as he's talking about the prophetic word, he's talking about the, the fulfillment that he witnessed of all of these prophecies of the Messiah to come. Like, Jesus, the events of the life of Jesus, confirmed for Peter the truth of the prophetic word that prophesied the coming of Jesus. It's the reason why throughout the Gospels, Jesus does things, and then the Gospel author will say, all this was to fulfill the words spoken by the prophet Isaiah, or the prophet Zechariah, or the prophet whoever. All of this stuff happened as fulfillment of what went before. Peter had spent his whole life with Jesus witnessing exactly this. He had seen with his own eyes the truth of the promises made by the prophets. He saw that they were the word of God. He says, no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. He recognized in those prophetic utterances the word of God himself. God had spoken through those prophets. But he also has a specific event in mind, generally the fulfillment of prophecy, but specifically the event that he references, the thing that he saw with his own eyes that makes all the difference in the world to him was an event Matthew describes in Matthew 17 that we call the transfiguration. Peter had been one of the few who had gone with Jesus onto the mount and had seen the transfiguration of our Lord. He describes it this way. When he received honor and glory from God the Father... And the voice was borne to him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven, for we were with him on the holy mountain. He had seen it. He had heard the voice from heaven declaring the pleasure of God the Father in God the Son. He had witnessed the truth of it with his own eyes. Here's Matthew's account in Matthew 17. Matthew says, After six days Jesus took with him Peter and James and John his brother and led them up a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them, and his face shone like the sun, and his clothes became white as light. And behold, there appeared to them Moses and Elijah talking with him. And Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it is good that we are here. If you wish, I will make three tents here one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. He was still speaking when, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them and a voice from the cloud said, This is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. When the disciples heard this, they fell on their faces and were terrified. But Jesus came and touched them, saying, Rise and have no fear. And when they lifted up their eyes, they saw no one but Jesus only. What did Peter see? He heard a voice, but what did he see? 
Matthew calls what he saw a bright cloud. Peter himself, who witnessed it, he doesn't even go that far. He doesn't even say, I saw a bright cloud. What he says, he calls it the majestic glory. He saw the majestic glory. What exactly is that? When you go back in the history of Scripture, you find it's not the first time that such an appearance took place. In Exodus 24, at Mount Sinai, we read these words, The glory of the Lord dwelt on Mount Sinai, and the cloud covered it six days. And on the seventh day, he called to Moses out of the midst of the cloud. It was a cloud on Sinai. Moses was called from within this cloud. That cloud followed the people of Israel as the tabernacle was built, the dwelling place for God. That cloud rested on the tabernacle, and throughout the wilderness it followed them wherever they went. In Exodus 40, we read, Then the cloud covered the tent of meeting, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. And Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting because the cloud settled on it, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Throughout all their journeys, whenever the cloud was taken up from over the tabernacle, the people of Israel would set out. But if the cloud was not taken up, then they did not set out till the day that it was taken up. For the cloud of the Lord was on the tabernacle by day, and fire was in it by night, in the sight of all the house of Israel, throughout all their journeys. The cloud followed them throughout the wilderness. When they arrived in the promised land, and the temple was built on Mount Zion, what happens? The cloud descends. The cloud descends. In Second Chronicles 5, when the song was raised with trumpets and cymbals and other musical instruments in praise to the Lord, for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever, the house, the house of the Lord was filled with a cloud so that the priests could not stand to minister because of the cloud, for the glory of the Lord filled the house of God. There you have it. What is the cloud? What is it that was witnessed by Peter? The glory of the Lord. The glory of the Lord, the cloud symbolized, embodied, was the visible manifestation of the presence of God. The cloud meant God was here. If God rested over the tabernacle, the people didn't journey away from it. They only left when the cloud was gone. They followed the presence of the Lord. Their worship was oriented towards wherever God's presence was felt. And so on the day of transfiguration, Peter goes up on the mount and witnesses something that hasn't been seen since the days of the temple. He witnesses the presence of God descending on that mountain and the voice of the Lord crowning with glory, the King of glory, Jesus Christ. And he recognizes that the presence of God is with men. That God himself has become human. That in Christ we have Emmanuel, God with us, dwelling with us. And if we are in Christ, we too are being made into a dwelling place for the presence of God. That's what he witnessed. That was the glory that confirmed the prophetic word. The cloud of the presence of God once sat over the temple. But in Christ, the presence of God was in the temple of Jesus Christ himself, the body of Christ God had come down and taken on flesh, and this was no myth. It was a story that explained everything, but it really happened. Peter had seen the prophetic word confirmed by the evidence 
of his own eyes. And that evidence, that word confirmed, that preached to Peter still preaches today. That voice is still heard today. The problem is, in the darkness, sometimes you need a lamp. In the darkness, sometimes you need a lamp. Jesus has received all the honor and glory of his exaltation. The voice of the Father declares him to be the Son of God, the Holy Spirit, who declared it through the mouths of the prophets of old and declared it through the apostles, declares it now through his preached word. The word of God in Scripture continues to declare the deity of Christ, the lordship of Christ. To this day, to this moment, that voice speaks. When we believe it, when we hear it, we enter into the light. The light that John says cannot be overcome by darkness. And yet, even those of us who've entered into that light, who've seen by that light, sometimes find ourselves straying into shadow. Straying away from that light. Peter said last time in in verse 9 of chapter 1, that sometimes it's as if we're practically blind. We've walked away so far from our cleansing in Christ that it's as if we become so nearsighted that we cannot see. Where do we go when that's true for us? Where do you go when you find yourself, when you find your heart darkened? As we saw in Exodus, the presence of God was a cloud by day, but in the darkness it became a pillar of fire. Even in the darkness, the presence of God was felt. Even in the darkness, there was a fire that brought light, that brought illumination so that he could be seen. Pay attention to the light, Peter says. We have the prophetic word more fully confirmed to which you will do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. There's confidence in those words. The light will come. The dawn will come. The light will shine in your heart. That glory will be known in your heart. But until then, when you find yourself stumbling in the darkness, straying, nearsighted, practically blind, Pay attention to the lamp that he has given, to the lamp shining in the dark place, the lamp that is his word. One of the problems in Christian teaching is that sometimes if you've been here long enough, the answers are always obvious. So it's difficult to have any kind of a conversation because you say, well, what do you think the answer is? And someone's going to say, it's Jesus. And how do you fight that? Of course it is. Of course it is. In this case... If you find yourself wandering in the darkness, feeling alienated from God, not understanding, doubting the truth of the prophetic word, and I say, where can you turn? Where is the light? And I say, oh, it's here. It's in Scripture. You're going to say, oh, well, yeah, obviously, of course it is. But can you give me any something, give me something stronger, something better, more specific to latch on to? Sure, yeah, yeah, I know it's in here. But can you give me something more uh, useful? And the answer is no. The answer is no. I don't have anything for you but this. God has given us nothing else but this, his word. This is the lamp. This is the light. 
You say, yeah, I, I get it. I see that. I see what he says. I see that he's revealed himself. But what I'm looking for is, is a different light. I'm looking for a different light to light the path I'm interested in. We don't have that. What he's given us is this lamp, this word, to illuminate the real darkness that we ought to fear, to travel down the true path that we ought to travel. It's not a difficult answer to say, oh, Scripture, look to Scripture, look to God as he's revealed himself. But it's also, it's it's not a trite or an easy one. Because what he said about himself is, is profound. It's unfathomable. It's rich and deep and layered. None of us could comprehend it in a lifetime. It can never be for us an easy answer. Never be a, th- a thing that you digest and walk away from. This is the light that he's given. His word. In the darkness, we need a lamp. We need the word of God. We need more than the word of God as words on a page, though. We need the word of God. The Logos, Christ, the divine word who became flesh and dwelled among us. Jesus Christ. If the prophetic word was true and the prophetic word was confirmed, it is because the prophetic word spoke the name of Jesus. Thank you for listening. You can find more sermons from Grace and information about joining us for worship by visiting our website at graceforsufalls.org. We also invite you to visit the iTunes store and subscribe to the Sermons of Grace podcast.